Here we are uh, in our message today. We're in this series called First Timothy, The Good Fight, and that sort of uh, embodied this, uh, this graphic by saying uh, sometimes in our Christian life, you are going to have to fight a good fight for the faith because not everybody around us believes. Not everybody around us buys into the, the truth that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we can have life in his name. And because of that, uh, because there's sometimes problems in the church, because sometimes not everybody believes the same thing and there's controversy and there's misunderstanding, we have to uh, know that sometimes we're called to be in a struggle, but we don't struggle the way the world is. We're not attacking each other. We are speaking the truth in love to each other, and that's fighting the good fight of, of the faith. Now, Timothy has been called by Paul. Timothy was a a uh, kid growing up in Lystra, became a follower of Christ, learned the scriptures from his mom and from his grandmother or his mama or his noni or nani or whatever you guys say it in Italian. Uh, they, he learned the scriptures from them and he became a follower of Jesus because Paul came into town and gave him the good news of Christ. And upon Paul's return for a second trip through the area, he asked Timothy to join the missionary team. And Timothy did. He joined Paul. Uh, now we're looking at 10, 15 years later, and Paul is continuing on his missionary work, and he says, Timothy, I got a job for you, and it's an important job. I want you to stay there in the city of Ephesus as my apostolic representative, and I want you to give the truth of the gospel, and I want you to straighten out some problems that are going on in the church. So Timothy, uh, he had a tough role to fulfill, and Timothy, uh, as far as we know, did a great job doing it. Uh, obeying what the apostle had told him to do. So here we are, two weeks ago, uh, before the Father's Day message, we were talking in the first part of 1 Timothy chapter 2 about public worship and prayer and what we're supposed to pray about when we gather together publicly. We're supposed to pray for all those who are in authority. And we did that two weeks ago. We stopped and we prayed uh, even for our president, our cabinet, our our Congress, our Supreme Court, those who make decisions that really affect our lives. So we're, we were praying that because God wants us uh, to, to live in peace and harmony in the communities that we're living in. And then he says, men, I, I want you to have the attitude. When you gather together in public worship and you lift up hands to pray to God, I want them to be holy hands. I want you to have clean hands, that you are forgiven of your sins, that you are trying to live a righteous life. And when you mess up, you confess your sins, and God forgives you, and you get back on the right path. So men lift up holy hands in prayer without any anger, without any controversy. And then he says, women, when you gather together for public worship, I want you to remember, it's not a fashion show. And now I don't think it applies so much to this church, but there are certain churches that I remember uh, watching videos of churches where I thought it was a fashion show. And it was like the women were dressed to the nines, so to speak, trying to impress everybody. And Paul says, that's not the posture, the attitude I want you to have. I want you to come into church with a modest appearance, and I want you to um, uh, be full of good works and have a good testimony in the community where you guys are trying to make a difference like we are here in Sebastopol in 2019. So as we dive in, I, I told you in the, in the video promo, I don't know if you guys saw that on Instagram or Facebook, but I, I gave a promo this week and I went, dun, 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 dun. 
because I said what we're going to talk about today is one of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament, the second half of 1 Timothy 2. And I come in it with fear and trepidation. I come at it with a lot of study. I'll be honest with you, I've studied more for this weekend's message than I have for almost any other message I've ever done. So I, I'm trying to do what 2 Timothy chapter 2 says. It says to the workman, to the, to the preacher, to the one who gives the message, it says study to show yourself approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, but who correctly accurately handles the word of truth. So I want to try to accurately handle the word of truth today. And I'm going to need God's help, and we get God's help through prayer. So I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are full of love and grace and holy and just. And Lord, we are dependent upon you. Lord, without your revelation, we would have no understanding. God, without your Holy Spirit, we would have no illumination to give us the proper understanding of what your word is teaching us of how to live and how to do church and what the proper role is for women in the church. So, Lord, we uh, just fall at your feet right now and we say, Lord, teach us, show us, Lord, give us clarity, uh, help us to tune in and focus and understand. Lord, help me to speak uh, the truth in love. Uh, help us to all grow up together uh, under the headship of our Lord Jesus to be the kind of church and the kind of people that you want us to be. So, Lord, we give this time to you, and we pray you'll make it special and fruitful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we dive into this controversial passage, there's five verses at the, at the last part of 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I, I want to remind us of a few realities. First of all, when we're reading this letter, <clears throat> just, just a, a, it's sort of tongue-in-cheek when I say this because the first service kind of laughed when I said that, but when we're reading 1 Timothy, we are reading someone else's mail, right? And uh, normally that's not really good. I think the post office frowns upon that. Uh, but in this case, God meant this letter to not just be read by the people who were attending the church of Ephesus in about the year 65, uh, in the year of our Lord, but also for all the churches who've ever assembled together to benefit from a Holy Spirit-inspired letter that Paul wrote to Timothy about how to properly uh, govern the activities of the church there in the city of Ephesus. So we're reading a letter in the first century. It was written in Greek. Uh, it takes place in a predominantly Gentile culture it was one of the biggest cities of the Roman Empire, Ephesus. It had a 25,000-seat amphitheater. It had a huge temple up on the hill, the, a temple of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, this goddess of love, or, or, and she was uh, a, definitely an idol that people worshipped. They even made silver uh, idols that people would wear like jewelry around there. So that, that was uh, what was going on in the city of Ephesus at the time, a big Gentile city in the Roman Empire. And yet at the same time, in the church in Ephesus, not just Gentiles in the church, there were also a number of people with Jewish background, what I call the JBBs, the Jewish background believers who are now followers of Jesus, Messianic Jews who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So... There's that reality, and then the context, of course, the context of 1 Timothy 2 
is as the church, as God's people, the assembly of God's people, as we are assembled together in public worship, what is to be the right conduct for men and for women in the church, right? So God, Paul is now going to focus on a Christian woman's place and role in the local church. And I, I'm telling you, what, the minute you see verse 11, you're going to say, oh, yeah, no wonder it's, you're saying this is controversial. Okay, let's go right to verse 11 and jump in. Here we go. Women should listen and learn quietly and submissively. How does that strike you, ladies, when you read that? You know, Jim, I'm just going to make it my memory verse right there. You know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and when I'm in the public church, I'm just ready to listen and learn quietly and submissively, right? That doesn't, uh, it doesn't strike me as very kind to women. But what I, what I do want to say about that is it does sound heavy-handed at first, but I want to remind you that Paul is saying to women, women should learn. Women should listen and be able to learn. And that was kind of controversial. That was avant-garde, if you will, in the first century because Women generally were not educated in the first century. Only about 10% of the women in the Roman Empire could even read. So it was not common for a woman to be educated at all. And yet Paul says, no, women should learn. He gave no prohibition for women to study and to learn Christian teaching. Paul's referring to the attitude of the women. So while you are learning women in the church... Don't be learning with an attitude of like, I'm going to interrupt anytime I can. I'm going to throw my opinion out there whenever I can. I'm going to disrupt whenever I can because after all, what I have to say is more important than whoever's up there speaking under the authority of the leadership of the church. And Paul says, no, don't have that attitude. A woman should learn and just alongside the men because the men should learn too. I mean, I hope men, I hope you're not reading into this and saying women should learn. Yeah, yeah. Like you know everything already. No, men should be learning too. Men should be learning. Women should be learning. We should all learn and listen with a quiet and submissive attitude. But he was directing this toward the women because of what was going on in the church of Ephesus at that time. So it, it, Paul's saying, women, I want you to learn, but practice self-restraint. Have a calm attitude while you are learning. Now it gets better. That, to me, that this was the easiest verse of the five. It only gets better from here. So let's go on to verse 12. Mm, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. 1 Timothy 2.12. That, that have authority over them is a Greek word, authentain. And there's probably been more study over this one Greek verb than just about <laughs> a lot of the verbs that are in the entire New Testament. By the way, this is the only time this Greek word is used in the whole New Testament to exercise authority, to have authority over the men. And I, I want to unpack it a little bit uh, before, uh, so we can have a better understanding. Now, in the church today, I'm just going to say, so remember, it says, I don't let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. One of the questions you could have, which I would have, was, okay, Paul, I, I know you're writing to Timothy. I know we're reading somebody else's mail. I know that the church in Ephesus, some, some context is going on. Something's happening in the church, and Paul's writing about this. So he's saying, women in the church there, I don't want them teaching. I don't want them exercising authority over men. Question, is what Paul wrote to Timothy right there for the Ephesian church 
in 65, in the year of our Lord, is that a command that is uh, necessary for all women in every church, in every culture, in every language, wherever the church is gathered for until Jesus comes again? Is that a prohibition for women teaching in church? Or is that something that was a a one-time or a more of a temporary restraining order for women in the church because of what was going on in the church at that time. So those are kind of the two basic questions I want to ask. And, and many people in the church have come down on both sides, many good people. I mean, it's not like, you know, you have the good guys, the white hats and the black hats, depending on who's interpreting this. Good people on both sides of this. Uh, the, first, the first position, by the way, Let's just define this right here. The first position holds, and this is called the complementarian position. And it doesn't mean that you read it and says, well, I'll give you a compliment. That's a good way to look at it. No, no, complementarian, a different spelling means that, that men and women are both equal before God, but men and women have different roles in the church, right? So that's the complementarian position. The first position holds that this passage prohibits women in all times and all cultures, during the teaching portion of the service. Now, if you're saying, well, what does that mean? I'm standing here doing that, okay? During the teaching portion of the service, from teaching or preaching, such activity would be interpreted as exercising authority over, over men. So if a woman comes up here and uh, she's teaching or she's preaching, delivering the message, and if there are any men in the audience then she's violating scripture, and that's not allowed. And there's, there, are no, there are a lot of churches out there that actually believe this and practice this, right? So that's the first position, right? That's called complementarian position. The second main position holds this passage where Paul says, I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. The, the proper interpretation of the second position says that this is a temporary restraining order right? That this is just for the Ephesian church at that time. Why? Why? Because they were false teachers in the city of Ephesus. By the way, you go back to Acts chapter 20, and Paul is meeting with the leaders of the Ephesian church. He, he stops off at this port of Miletus. It's a, few, it's a number of miles south of Ephesus. He says, call the elders of the church and bring them here. I've got to have one last meeting with them. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul is telling them, okay, this is what I did when I was with you. This is what I need to tell you. You are elders over the church. You need to shepherd the flock of God, which God purchased with his own blood. You need to realize that after I leave, savage wolves are going to come in, and they're not going to spare the flock. And that was a metaphor for these false teachers that are going to come in and try to mess up the church. Because here's, here's the reality. We are in a spiritual warfare here in the church, no matter where you are in the world today, right? We're in a spiritual warfare, meaning that Satan, who is our adversary, by the way, 1 Peter says this, Satan, your adversary, prowls around, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Satan, our adversary, is going to try to gum up the works of the church. He's going to try to destroy what God is trying to build in the church. And Satan usually attacks the church in one of two ways. He either attacks the church, much like he did in the first three centuries in the Roman Empire, he attacks the church from the outside. That's called persecution. But Satan will also try to attack the church from the inside, and that's called division. 
So he'll try to bring in false teaching, false teachers, and he'll try to divide the church through that. And that's what was happening in, in uh, 1 Timothy. In fact, for 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, Paul says, I left you there in Ephesus to stop these false teachers from doing their false teaching, right? We're going to unpack exactly, well, we don't know exactly what they were teaching, but we can sort of understand what these false teachers were teaching. We're going to get to that. So here's the thing. False teachers going on in the church in Ephesus, a number of women who were not educated in the scriptures, as we said, only 10% women in the Roman Empire even read. Women were not encouraged to be educated in the first century. So there's this reality going on, and these false teachers come in, and these women are being deceived by the false teachers. They're buying the false doctrine. They're subscribing to it, and then they're going out and saying, hey, I can teach this now to everybody else in the church. And Paul says, wow, this is bad. This needs to stop. So Paul gives Timothy, tells the church leaders to put a temporary restraining order on women teaching men in the church at that time because of the false teachers. His mandate was to stop activities of certain women and men, because a lot of the false teachers were men as well, in the church, stop them from teaching their false doctrine in the city of Ephesus. Now, you say the first position, complementarian. The second position here, you say it was a temporary restraining order. Jim, where do you land on here? You know, and I'll say um, right in the middle because I don't want to offend anybody. No, I, I actually, I subscribe to the second position. Just so you know, laying cards on the table. I believe this is the reality that this was not a prohibition for all times, all places, all church. This was a temporary restraining order because of what was happening in Ephesus. And I have reasons to believe why I believe this is true. And the rest of the message is going to be me telling you why I think this is true. Because we're only talking about five verses today. So let me explain where I'm coming from. Let me give some background information of the church and the culture that was going on in the first century, right? So here's, here's what's happening back in the day. And I remember I started out the message by saying, when we're reading 1 Timothy, you're reading somebody else's mail. You're going back 20 centuries. You're going back to a continent in western Turkey, the, city, the, the province of Asia, in the, one of the biggest cities in the Roman Empire, Ephesus, a Gentile city that had a Jewish synagogues, and the church had just begun there, right? So you're going back in time into the culture of the first century. Most men in the first century considered intellectual activity to be a predominantly male exercise. In other words, women don't get educated. In the Jewish culture, it was the boys, not normally the girls, who were trained to recite Torah or the law. Women were not trained as disciples. Only about 10% could read. So reading and teaching in the first century was considered predominantly to be a man's role almost exclusively there in the first century, right? So uh, that's why uh, there were, that's why Paul was telling these women that they need to stop because they weren't educated enough. They hadn't received the correct uh, Christian teaching enough to know the difference between the truth and the lies, and they got deceived by these false teachers, and the church was being led down the wrong path. So Paul says, Timothy, you have to straighten that out, right? Now, let me go back to that verb there in, in verse 12, where it says, memory says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. That, that Greek word authority, to have authority. 
That Greek word authentain, it it's the only time it occurs here in the New Testament. It's not the usual word for positive, active authority. Parents, fathers and mothers, instruct your children in the training and the ways of the Lord. That would be mom and dad exercising proper authority, right? But this exercising authority that Paul's talking about, that's a negative connotation. It's a negative term referring to the usurpation, referring to the abuse of authority. In other words, you're going out of the proper bounds of authority in order to do this teaching, and it's wrong, and it needs to stop, right? So Paul is prohibiting uh, against some abusive activity in the Ephesian church. Um, we see some clues to what the abuse is. And if you read First and Second Timothy, if you read, uh, well, these two letters, because uh, they followed each other maybe a, in a couple of years, but same church, same basic situation. If you read First and Second Timothy and say, what was wrong? What was going wrong in the church that Paul said needed to be corrected, right? In 1 Timothy 4, we're going to get that there in a few weeks, there was false teaching going on, and it said they will say that it is wrong to be married. They'll say it's wrong to be married. So one of the false teaching is, hey, this whole marriage thing with man and women and children, that is so archaic, that is so of the past. And you know why? Because... You remember when Jesus was, was uh, there before the Jewish authorities? He was in the temple. You've, you read about it in Matthew 22. And, and they come up and the uh, Sadducees asked Jesus this hypothetical question. They said, hey, Jesus, let's say, let's say this woman marries a man and the man dies. And uh, by the Jewish law, her brother is supposed to now marry the woman to carry on the family line, Right. So the woman marries the brother, and now the brother of the first husband who dies, he dies. So, and then the next brother comes along, and now he marries the woman. And it goes all the way to seven husbands. By this time, I've nicknamed her Black Widow, right? Because seven men have died that she's been married to. I don't know if it was mush, poison mushrooms. Uh, we don't... Don't even go there, but because but, it was a hypothetical, and the, and the Sadducees, they only meant to bring up the question to trip Jesus up. So they said, and, and by the way, because this group of Jews, they didn't even believe in a resurrection after the dead. So they're asking Jesus this hypothetical question. This woman's been married to seven men. They all die, and now she's a widow, and she dies. In the resurrection, whose wife of the seven is she going to be? Whose wife is she going to be? Like the first guy or the last guy that she was married to? Whose husband will she be? And then Jesus said, you guys don't understand the scriptures. You don't understand the power of God. And Jesus said, in the resurrection, there will be no marriage or given in marriage. Right? That order was an earthly activity between men and women. Be fruitful and multiply. Men and women are going to be married to each other and have children and families. That activity that was there on earth is not going to be uh, part of what's going on in heaven. There would be no marriage or given in marriage. And so what did the false teachers do? They said, we're going to take this teaching of Jesus and we're going to say the kingdom of God that Jesus was referring to in the future in the resurrection, we're going to make that a reality now. So there's no need for men and women to be married because we're kingdom people. We're in the kingdom of Jesus and, and we, we belong to him. And soon Jesus is going to return. So why do we even need to be married at all? And so they started prohibiting marriage. 
another false teaching. They started saying that uh, certain foods were prohibited. You can't eat certain kind of foods. And so there was, there's one clue that we have is what the false teaching was. And Paul says, wow, <laughs> these guys are messed up. They misunderstand what Jesus was saying here, and they're teaching false doctrine. So uh, that was another thing that was happening there. So Paul's trying to keep the big picture in mind, right? Let's go to the next slide, please. So here's, when, when Paul commands something to these letters to Timothy and to Titus, when, when he gives a command, especially in these letters, um, there's, there's a, something going on in the local church. Timothy, if it's wrong, you need to fix it, right? So something's wrong going on in the Ephesian church. False teaching, women are standing up teaching when they really shouldn't be. You need to stop that from happening. Why? Because, Timothy, if the, if the women are getting out of the proper bounds of authority, it is going to be your church and your church culture, it's going to have a negative impact on the community around you. And they're going to say, wow, uh, you guys say that this following Jesus makes life better. You're saying that, you know, love one another. Uh, wives respect your husbands. Husband love your wives as Christ loved the church. You, you guys say you have better marriages. Well, I'm, not, I'm watching you guys, and I'm not seeing it happen. And Paul says, no, we can't have a negative impact on our community. We're trying to win this community to the, to the Christian faith. We're trying to have a message that is a, a good witness where people will believe when we say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and you need to follow him, and he'll forgive you of your sins. He'll give you eternal life. And following Christ makes life better. It's the best way to live. It's the only way to die. We need to communicate that truth to our culture. And if you've got a messed up church, it's not going to be a good witness to the culture. So to help the church's evangelistic mission, Paul would give this command for what was going on in that church at the time so they could have a good standing in the community. Now, one of the questions you have is, okay, Jim, you think that that was a temporary restraining order. Why do you say that? Why don't you just say, no, Paul said that, and that's the word of God, and that's for all churches at all time. The reason I say it was temporary for that one church was because you can look at many other places in the New Testament, and you can see where women were either teaching or prophesying or acting as leaders in the church. Let me refer you to a few passages, right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul knew in other places, even when he was writing this letter to Timothy, he knew that women were praying and prophesying in the church because look what he wrote in the Corinthian letter. He said, a woman dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head, right? Now, sorry, women, but let, let's just say, are we practicing this in the church today? Are women wearing coverings on their head? Women who are married as a sign of respect that they are... They're uh, respecting the authority of their husband in marriage. Are women wearing head coverings in church today? Not really. Not, not a whole lot. I've been in churches where they are. I've been in churches where women couldn't wear pants. They had to wear long dresses all the way down to the ankles. Dresses up to here. Uh, head coverings. I called them doilies. Like, like they, were a, they were something you'd put on a table. Uh, put a vase of flowers on. You know? But, it, but they, had, they had these head coverings because... The church was trying to obey the scriptures, and that's the way they interpreted the scriptures at the time. I think that this was a temporary uh, command for what was going on in Corinth. I think the women were getting out of authority for their husbands. They were, they were praying and prophesying without a covering on her head. 
But here's the point I'm trying to make bringing up this passage. You can talk about whether she should have a head covering or not on her head in the church today. But the main thing was Paul was saying a woman is praying and prophesying in the public gathering in church. So she's doing what Paul would have said don't do to Timothy over in the Ephesian church. So there's, there's one exception if that's going to be the rule for everybody. Paul did not forbid women from teaching in other places in the scripture. So you have 1 Corinthians 5. You have this overarching scripture in Galatians 3.28. It says this, there's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer any race differences in the body of Christ. There's no longer slave or free. There's no class or economic differences. There's no male or female. For you are all Christians. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, one, you know, the, the quippy way to put it is the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody comes in the kingdom of God the same way. And you can't say, because I'm a male, because I'm a Jew, because uh, I'm not a slave, that gives me greater standing in the kingdom of God. Paul was saying, no, none of that stuff matters. Whoever you are, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are part of the kingdom of God. And everybody in the kingdom of God has equal standing and equal um, value in God's sight, right? So there's Galatians 3.28, kind of an overarching theme. In Christ, believers are all one. There's, there's no distinctions of race or class or gender. Now, later on in the Corinthian letter, Paul's going to talk about spiritual gifts, and he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he said, some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But you know what? We've all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, in other words, we've all entered the same way by faith in Christ, by being willing to be immersed into Christ as a, identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and declaring that you're going to be a loyal Christ follower for the rest of your life. You've all got in the same way. We've all received from the same spirit. So anybody who has put their trust in Jesus, male or female, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, you've all come in the same way by grace through faith. Now Paul talks about spiritual gifts and he gets into spiritual gifts, and let's go to the next slide where he says, oh, I, sorry, I got to bring this one up too. This one's even better because what I was going to say about spiritual gifts was God gave spiritual gifts to the body of Christ, and it certainly does not say when God was distributing spiritual gifts that he said, well, except for women. Women don't get these gifts. Those gifts are only given to men. Sorry. You know, no, Paul, you don't read that anywhere where there was a, a gender distinction between who got one spiritual gift or who didn't get that spiritual gift. When the church began on the day of Pentecost, two weeks ago, we celebrated the day of Pentecost, right? And then we had that evening worship over there at Spring Hills Church. That was a lot of fun. But look at this in the day of Pentecost when the church began. Uh, the Holy Spirit comes down, everybody's speaking in different languages, and the people are saying, what does this mean? And Peter says, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy given by the Old Testament prophet Joel, and now in Acts 2, Peter quotes what Joel had to say. So in the messianic kingdom, when the kingdom of God comes, look what's going to happen. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons, and I should have put this in yellow, just so you'd, you'd go, ding, 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 I'm getting it. Uh, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. 
In those days I will pour out my spirit on all my servants, men and women alike, and they will all prophesy. I do not see any gender restriction on what uh, Peter was announcing with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the distributing of spiritual gifts. Let's go to that next slide about the spiritual gifts. And look what he says. There's different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us, men and women, slave or free, Gentile or Jew, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. God gives us spiritual gifts. He gives them to the body of Christ. He gives uh, the spiritual gifts to build up the rest of the body of Christ. And God never says anywhere, wait a minute, only certain gifts, preaching, uh, leadership in the church, those spiritual gifts. I'm sorry, I have I've reserved those for the males in the church only. God does not say that when he distributes spiritual gifts. Now, here's another, here's another example. When you go to Luke and you, you realize what Luke wrote about the early church. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, you're in northern Greece. Paul gets this Macedonian call. He gets a vision at night. Please come over and help us. So Paul says, God's calling us to go to the city uh, or the province of Macedonia. They go to the biggest city in the province, Philippi. They see these women who are down there by the riverside having a prayer meeting. And that's how the church began in Philippi, right? And so in the church in Philippi in Acts 16, um, uh, that's how the church began with this church in Philippi. And what you're going to see when you get to the Philippian letter is many of the church leaders in that church were called out by Paul, and many of the church leaders were women. So uh, I'll get there in just a minute. In, later on in, in the book of Acts, in Acts 18, now you actually get to the same city where Paul's writing this letter, right? Ephesus. First and Second Timothy have to do a lot with Ephesus, right? So now in Acts 18, there's this great new uh, gifted orator, Christian speaker. His name is Apollos, and he is out of this world. He's off the chart as far as ability goes. And he's preaching the kingdom of God, and he's making converts, and he's confounding the Jews in the synagogue, and he's doing awesome, except that Apollos didn't know about the baptism of Jesus. All he knew about was the baptism of John. And so there's a husband-wife team named Aquila and Priscilla, and they come up to him after he's done preaching. And I, th I thought this was really cool. They're very respectful of him because they don't call him out in the middle, and he says, uh, excuse me, you mentioned the baptism of John. Do you also know there's the baptism of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? So they're not going to call him out and embarrass him, embarrass him in public when he's, when he's doing his proclamation and his teaching and preaching. So they take him aside. And Priscilla, and by the way, her name is always mentioned before Aquila whenever they're mentioned as this wife-husband team, uh, sort of implying that she may have had more uh, certain abilities in this area than her husband did. So when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, says they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately to them. And I'll tell you what you don't read. You don't read in the next verse, and Apollo said, I rebuke you, Priscilla, because you're a female trying to exercise authority over me, a male. You can't do that. It says right there in 1 Timothy 2.12. No, Apollos received it 
because Aquila, I'm sorry, Priscilla and Aquila had more knowledge, they had more education about the Christian faith right at that moment than Apollos did, and God called them to teach him so that he would be even better at what he did as a Christian teacher. So God obviously used a woman to teach a man. Today in the 21st century, and by the way, I've told you guys about this in the first century, right? Low education status for women, 10% of the Roman Empire's females could read. Are the times slightly different today in the 21st century in America than they, than they were in the first century? Oh, I think so. I think Bob Dylan was right. The times, they are changing. Look at now in the 21st century. 35% of women are now college graduates in the USA. 35% of women. Well, great. How many men are there? 34% of men are now college graduates in the USA. More women than men are now college graduates in the USA. In my day, back in 19... 16% uh, uh, of the women were college graduates. By the way, she graduated before I did. So I, I married a college graduate. You married a college student. You slumped. You, I, I upgraded and you, you went to the bottom of the barrel. All right, so uh, I so I was not yet a college graduate. So, uh, but only but back in the 1980s, 16% of women, 23% of men. Steadily, 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 it is now more women. There are now more women in college than men, right? So more women are college graduates than men. Last year, 1.2 million women graduated from college. 58% of all the college grads. And you say, okay, well that's college, you know. Certainly, men would be more educated, more, you know, as you get into the higher learning. Let's talk about graduate. Come on, let's talk about doctorates. Okay, well, well let's talk about master's degrees. 489,000 women, close to half a million women, earned their master's degree last year. 328,000 men earned their master's degrees last year. So where's the trend going? You see this? In education... Okay, 99,000 women earned their doctoral degrees last year. 85,000 men earned their doctoral degrees last year. I can give a testimony to this because in May, I started a doctoral program at Grand Canyon University, right? Five years from now, Lord willing, I'm going to get this whatever, this robe that's, and somebody's going to shake my hand and says, welcome to the family of scholars. Scholars. If you get a doctorate, you get to be called a scholar. And so I, I, I have a dream, and someday that may happen. But I can tell you that about seven weeks into this program, there's a cohort that we're a part of, 19 other students, and like 12 of the 19 in this doctoral program are women. So, and you know what? They're writing better than I do. They're giving better answers. I'm playing catch-up to these doctoral student women. So it's, it's, um, it's good for me. To, 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 you know, you got you to gotta run with the thoroughbreds if you want to keep up. Uh, it's awesome. That's the reality now in the 21st century. Women are not just being educated better than they, way better than they were in the first century. Women are, that, women are even getting more educated overall than men. And, and this isn't just, okay, well, that's secular colleges, that's university. That's talking about, you're talking about teachers and nurses and stuff like that. No, I'm also, we're talking about Christian universities. Women learning Christian theologies, women getting doctorates in theology, women becoming scholars and teachers in the Christian church today. That is now happening in the church today. And if you want to ask, you say, well, 
did God really gift, I mean, come on, Jim, did God really gift women with the ability to speak and to teach and to give powerful Christian messages in the church today? Did God really give women, you know, uh, uh, certain women at least, that kind of ability uh, just as powerful as many men that are out there? Come on, seriously? I say seriously, and I want you to give your attention to the screen because you're going to see a video. You don't know to the marrow of your bones that Jesus is the one until he is the only. And you learn it through all sorts of experiential knowledge. You learn it through um, crises, through finding out that he will never betray you no matter what friend betrays you. No matter what person, loved one in your life betrays you. Jesus cannot, he's incapable of sinning against you. He's incapable of doing you wrong. In him is no darkness at all. Anybody else could abandon you. Praise God, most of them will not. But should you be abandoned by somebody that was dear to you, your God will never abandon you. He cannot reject you. He cannot forsake you. He puts his word on it and his character on it. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not and he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Only two times that word, thavmazel, marveled, is in the New Testament. Both times have got to do with faith. Once was the marvelous faith of the centurion and the other time was the unbelief of those who knew Jesus best. Familiarity is a dangerous thing. Jesus had grown up in Nazareth and they knew Him. Oh, isn't that Joseph the carpenter's son? Isn't that just, we know his sisters, we know his brothers, we know his foibles, we know his quirks. Who, who is this? And it is easy to have Jesus in your midst and be offended by Him because you don't like the packaging that He comes in. And they didn't like who He was. And the issue is familiarity can breed spectacular unbelief. When you get familiar with the things of God, when you get familiar with the house of God, when you get familiar with the blessing of God, when you no longer recognize the awe and the majesty and the wonder of our King Jesus, when you start taking for granted so great our salvation and the fact that we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and a majestic Saviour, when you get familiar how do you change somebody when you share the gospel and you say, for God so loved the world? God? You know, which God is that? He so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son? We're all sons of God. That whosoever believes in him, wait a minute, are you saying Jesus is the only way? That sounds narrow-minded, intolerant. We all have our own gods. And you would not perish? Perish? You believe in hell? Oh, that is so archaic. That was so medieval. That you would have everlasting, everlasting life. I don't believe in that. I believe when you die, you just snuff out. So how do you convince somebody like that? That the gospel is true. That God does so love the whole world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever places his faith in him would not perish but have everlasting life. How do you convince them? You don't. 
Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Praise God, you know? We don't have to do the convincing. We do the sharing. How can they believe if they don't hear it? We have to, they, they have to hear it. We have to share our faith and share the gospel. But it's the Holy Spirit who changes them. And that's what those verses say. He convinces of sin. He convinces of righteousness. And he convinces of judgment if they don't get right with God. And I just wonder what would happen if this week there were some people who were brave enough to say, Lord, would you do it again? Would you not allow me to be a Christian in name only? Would you make it so that I'm so uncomfortable with being a nominal Christian who just comes to church, who just reads a verse a day to keep the devil away, who's just a good person, but isn't a person who is completely sold out for the cause of Jesus Christ? Lord, would you make it so that I am different and unique and set apart and filled by the Holy Spirit of God? Lord, would you do it again? And would you let it start with me? Some of the best teaching today that you got was in the last four minutes on that video by four women, by Beth Moore, by Christine Kane, by Ann Graham Lotz, Billy Graham's daughter. In case it kind of, I, I leaned over to Lisa first service. I said, it looks like Billy Graham with a wig. Uh, but, but he was the one who said, oh, my daughter, she's the preacher of all the kids. Uh, and then also the, the last person was um, Priscilla Shirer. Right? Those women are all so gifted by God. I have, I have sat under their teaching more times uh, than I could count, and I have gotten something good out of every one of them every time they have taught or preached. And I cannot believe that uh, you can pull one verse out of 1 Timothy 2 and say, those women gifted that way by God should never be in a church of mixed company where there are men sitting in there listening and that would be prohibited for them to get anything out of what they were saying. I, I just, ca I cannot see that happening. So, you know, how you uh, come down on 1 Timothy 2.12, the first position or the second first position, is it universal or timeless for all women in all ages and cultures, that prohibition to teach or exercise authority over men? Or is this versus applicability, it's local, to the city of Ephesus, to what was happening at the church at the time. It's a temporary restraining order until they could solve the problem of some women joining in the false teaching that Timothy was charged to stop. I come down on the second uh, position, and I believe that that is true, and I, I see what's happening in the world today. I see what happens that when women are allowed to be educated, that not only uh, do they excel in the education, but you see their spiritual gifts the way God has gifted them. You see them come up even more and more to the surface. And they are now blessing the body of Christ by utilizing the way that God has gifted them to build up the rest of the body of Christ. Um, I got to get to three more verses before I finish. And they don't get easier either. I thought, okay, fine. We did verse 11. We did verse 12. Now it's going to be easy, right? Look at verse 13. It says, for God made Adam first, and then afterward he made Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived by Satan. The woman was deceived, and sin was the result. Well, thanks, Paul. 
Now explain this one. So God, and, and, and I think Paul was giving this as a reason to justify what he just said in verse 12, right? Hey, God made Adam. Adam wasn't the first one who sinned. It was Eve, right? And, and she was deceived by the serpent, by Satan. It was the woman who was, who was deceived and sin was the result. Now you read that all by itself and you say, exactly. That's why we don't allow women to stand up and teach in church. Because they were, you know, the first woman was deceived by Satan. The same guy, Paul, who wrote this letter to Timothy, he also wrote the letter to the Romans. And if you go over to Romans chapter 5, and you talk about how sin came into the world, by the way, does Paul say in Romans 5 that sin came into the world through Eve? And the answer is no. It's really sad that none of you could answer that question, except my wife. But we had talked about it this week. But by the way, it says, Paul says in Romans 5, through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. And you're saying, well, Paul's contradicting himself. He's saying one thing in Romans and another thing in Timothy. No, what Paul's saying is Eve was deceived by the serpent. And the reason is God told Adam, do not eat from this one particular fruit. You can eat all the fruit in the garden. Don't eat this one particular fruit. The day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. God told that to Adam directly. Then it was Adam who told his wife Eve, hey, this is what God says. We're not supposed to eat from this fruit. So Eve didn't hear it directly from God. She heard it from her husband, Adam. And then Eve was deceived by Satan, deceived by his lie. And by the way, I also think that Adam was too, although Adam was held more responsible because sin entered the world through Adam, because Adam had heard the command from God. Eve was deceived by the serpent. But when Adam decided to disobey God, when Eve's handing him the apple, hey, it tastes good. Do you want to try it? You know, that Adam knew directly what he was doing. He knew he was disobeying a direct command from God. And that, according to Paul, that's how sin entered the world. So here's the point I'm trying to make about this. Paul compares the deception and deceit of that first woman, Eve, with the way that a number of women in the Ephesian church, they were being deceived by, they began to follow these false teachers. Eve's deception in the garden served as a model to illustrate the dangers posed to the church by false teaching. And as Eve was deceived by the false teaching, instead of talking and trying to teach what was contrary to sound Christian living, these women would do way better instead of doing the false teaching, instead of passing on what they were deceptively taught by these false teachers, not knowing any better, Paul says, women, it is better for you to remain silent, to learn the truth, to get the right doctrine before you go flying off and start teaching what is false. So that, I think, is the correct understanding of that passage. And then it gets worse. (laughs) We're going on to the last verse in chapter 2, and then I can say, hallelujah, we're moving on from there. But when you get to the last verse... It's like, thank you, Paul. But women, hey, good news for you women, especially you mothers who've given birth. That, that, that uh, uh, Patty Ching's uh, daughter there, she could, she's in the kingdom of God now because she just gave birth to twins. Women will be saved through childbearing, assuming they continue to live in faith, love, holiness, and modesty. Wow, thank you. I, I don't even know, where do, you, where do you go with that? Except there's an alternate translation that says, Women will be saved by accepting their roles as, as mothers. Remember, remember the false teaching had a lot to do with marriage, 
right? Hey, in the kingdom of God, there's no such thing as husband and wife anymore because there won't be any marriage or given in marriage in heaven. We're just going to take that and apply to now where we're living in Ephesus here in the first century. And so women, you don't have to be married to your husbands anymore. You don't have to have families anymore. And Paul's saying, no, women, you need to get back to your role in the culture. You're going to be married to men. You're going to have families Your role is going to be as a wife and a mother, just like the man's role is going to be as a husband and a father, and that's going to create stability in families. That's going to create a good witness for the church to the community at large, and you need to go back to practicing that. That's one way to interpret it. Another way you can, what I highlighted in yellow, is you can say, or that women, or that women will be saved by the birth of the child. So instead of saying childbearing as they themselves giving birth, women will be saved by the birth of the child who would be the Christ child who came through the Virgin Mary, what we call the incarnation, which is one of those foundational Christian truths. Jesus came into this world miraculously. Jesus left this world miraculously. He's the only person in history who ever did both. And Jesus coming through Mary to fulfill what God told Eve in the garden when said, you're going to have pain in childbirth, but uh, your seed, through your seed, Eve, he is going to crush the head of the serpent. And that's exactly what Jesus did when he conquered him through the cross and through the resurrection and, and abolishing sin and death and giving us eternal life that is all. So I think that's a better way of interpreting that, not just saying, hey, Sorry, women, if you've never physically given birth to a child, you have no chance to be in the kingdom of God. You really know that that's not the way to interpret that. Because many, many other passages say that we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by putting our trust, our belief, our confidence in Jesus to be our Savior, to be the mediator between us and God. Many, many other times. So when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, one of the things you have to do is you have to say, let Scripture interpret Scripture. you got to take the whole counsel of God. When You don't just say, I'm taking this one passage all by itself, and that is, it says these words, that's all I'm going to take. No, you say, what does that mean in the light of all the rest of the revelation of Scripture? So women will be saved by the birth, putting their faith and confidence of the one who was born of a woman, born under the law, that he may redeem all of those who were captive to the law of sin and death. So I think that's a better way to interpret it. Let me cut to the chase. Let's go down to what can we conclude where there's five verses in 1 Timothy. It's the the shortest block of scripture that I'm going to be preaching on in 1 Timothy. Right? What can we conclude from today's study about this idea of women studying and learning quietly, women not teaching or exercising authority over men in that church? What can we conclude? In verse 11, Paul recognized that women could and should study and learn in church. Right? That was a breakthrough in the first century. That was actually an advancement for women in that culture. Uh, yes, their attitude should be quietly and, and reverently, just like it should be for men. But he was actually elevating women's status in the first century church family by saying women could and should study and learn. So that's number one. Number two, when you come to verse 12, it says, in the context of this marriage and church relationship, this phrase, teach or have authority over men, uh, 
it pictures this wife or a woman who would be trying to dominate or act in a domineering way in church. And Paul says, you're not having proper respect for your husband if you're married, and you're also not having proper respect for the church leadership. You've got to stop doing that. And that's where I think the, the proper interpretation lies in verse 12. So that's number two. Number three, Paul was really seriously concerned with false teaching by women or by men. Because where did the women learn it from? You say, oh, blame the women. They were, do, they were teaching false teaching. Where did they get the false teaching? From these men in the church, from what Paul said are these savage wolves that would come in in, in Acts 20, what he was telling the Ephesian elders, watch out for these guys because they're going to come in like savage wolves. They're going to not spare the flock. And you got to be on guard for that. you got to protect the church from false teachers like that. And the, obviously, whatever the leadership was in the Ephesian church, they weren't doing a very good job because the false teachers had come in, they had deceived these women, and now these women were uh, repeating the false teaching that they had heard. So Paul says, you've got to put a stop to that false teaching by these women here in the Ephesian church. And number four, even though women were not educated very much in the first century, that truth is certainly not true today. That is not the reality today. Many women are scholars. Many have bachelor's, master's, doctoral degrees from the most respected Christian institutions. And by the way, here's another thing. If you really think, oh, well, the church is messing up by letting women uh, speak and teach in churches and in the body of Christ, if you think that's true, why do you think these Christian institutions are even allowing women to come into these programs? I mean, why, if, they're, if, if you believe what you believe, why don't you say, you guys are messing up? Why are you letting a woman in there? Lisa, you remember back at Ozark Christian College, 1980, Joplin, Missouri. Misery, I mean Missouri. And she left after a year, but she took a class, and on her transcript, the class said, uh, expository teaching. So she got a, a, a three-unit class in expository teaching. To the majority of men who were in that class, on their transcript, it said expository preaching. They got the expository preaching credit, but she got the teaching credit because obviously a woman can't preach. Hypocrite. Okay. Anyway, um, just, just where I'm coming down now. But this is 2019. We've come a long way, baby. Women have come a long way. The church is coming a long way. We are, we are understanding uh, things better better now, I believe. Uh, so uh, the false teaching had to stop in that day. I believe it was a temporary restraining order for what was going on in the church of Ephesus at the time. And the majority of women in the church today, they're vastly better educated. And those women, just, just as if, and, and, and I want to say this too, just like you wouldn't want some uneducated man to come up and start teaching or preaching, in church that had no real knowledge of the gospel, that didn't know the scriptures, that was making mistakes and errors every third sentence that came out of his mouth, you wouldn't want some man to come up here either and do that, nor should some woman come up and be a teacher or preacher or act that way in a church pulpit and against the authority of the, of the leaders of the church. So again, this has to do with the local church. This has to do with the leadership in the local church and what the leadership allows to happen. And uh, the leaders, I, when it came to those four gifted women, for example, all of those women were speaking in churches. One woman, Christine Kane, was like she's in a group of 10, 20,000 people, men and women, at a passion conference because that's how gifted she is. And that's the, 
the, the, the audience that she can, she can uh, speak to. So anyway, but the point is, all of them were allowed to, they were given authority to speak in those places at that time by the leadership of the church of the Christian organization. So it really comes down to the local church, what each one allows to do, and I'm of the opinion, I hope you know by now, that I think that if there are gifted women teachers, they should have the ability, they should have the opportunity to speak as God gives them that opportunity. So that's just where I'm coming down. Now, Sarah, you waited so patiently. Would you and your worship team, would you guys come up, because you're going to sing a closing song, and I want you to come up and get ready to sing, and the rest of us, before we sing, I want us to pray. So I want to invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I recognize that this is a difficult uh, to understand passage. This is controversial. This has been interpreted by good Christian people on both sides of the aisle in different ways, trying to understand what your will is uh, for uh, women and speaking and teaching and leading in your church today. God, I, I realize there are people on both sides of the aisle. Lord, please help us to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That whatever way we come down on this issue, God, in all things, we want to advance your kingdom. We want everybody to become as Christ-like as they possibly can, men and women. We want everybody to be able to exercise the spiritual gifts that you gave them, whatever those gifts are, male or female. So, Lord, help us to do our part uh, to uh, promote uh, people in using their spiritual gifts to grow your church. God, help us to be a witness. Above all, Lord Jesus, you said that you want all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, you came to be the mediator between sinful man and holy God. There's one mediator, and he's Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would, each of us in our own hearts, make that decision, if we haven't done that yet, to say, I choose today to become a follower of Jesus. I believe that, Jesus, you are the way and the truth and the life. And I'm putting my trust in you. And you said, as many as received you, to those who believed in your name, that they could become children of God. So, Lord, I... I I enter your family by faith, and I pray that you'll help me stay faithful to following you all the days of my life. Lord, bless us all, grow your church, help us to be healthy, help us to love one another, help us to exercise our spiritual gifts in the way that you want us to in this church body, in this family today. And we pray.